Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians will be in chapter 5 this morning. Really digging into the first half of Galatians 5 as we look at true Christian freedom. True Christian freedom. So if you have a copy of God's word there, I invite you to turn there, follow along as I read aloud Galatians 5 verses 1 through 6. Paul writes here, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you who have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What is true Christian freedom? Galatians 5 verse 1 sits here right as a hinge between chapters 4 and 5. You have been called to freedom. Stand, therefore, and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Well, what is this freedom? What is the nature of this freedom? Now, we often think of the gospel as merely faith and repentance, faith in Christ and Christ alone, and that is the gospel. But the question is, does that moment have any implications for the rest of our lives? And what Galatians 5 verse 1 does is it links the work of Christ in saving us to the work of the Spirit in sanctifying us. Sometimes we use these words, we call it justification. There's a moment of repentance and faith towards God where God says righteous in the courtroom. And then there's a life of sanctification, of walking with Christ. Or sometimes we talk about conversion, repentance and faith, and growing in Christ. And what Galatians 5 tells us is you cannot separate one from the other. You can't separate justification from sanctification. You can't separate faith in Christ from walking with Christ. And Galatians 5 answers the question this way, what is true Christian freedom? And we see here that the gospel calls us to true Christian freedom, which is the freedom to serve others in love. In other words, true freedom is service to others. Now, we might think about it this way. A number of us here have walked far enough in life with someone else that perhaps you remember your wedding day. And if you had a wedding day, perhaps you're sitting here with your spouse this morning and perhaps That person is no longer here. But let me ask you this question. What is the difference between a wedding and a marriage? And which is more important? Well, it's a little bit of a trick question because both can be important. In other words, that the person you're living with and sitting by is not your spouse. You've never had that wedding. That may not be a good thing. But on the other hand, you can have that moment, and if you don't have a life of walking faithfully with each other, that's also not a good thing. 
You see, the moment of the wedding does what? It prepares you for a life of committed love and service to each other. You could have the most unspectacular wedding in the world. You hit the J-O-P, the justice of the peace, and you hit the road and you could have a life of faithful matrimony, a long relationship. Or you could have the biggest show in the world, a $100,000 wedding, and have a very unsuccessful marriage. You see, in the end, both are necessary. That, that moment of un unifying with one another in love, in lifelong committed covenants, and then living out that covenant. And what Galatians 4 and 5 are teaching us is that the same is true of our relationship with Christ. It is necessary that we be joined to Christ. But it is also necessary that we live out this covenant in faith. That we walk with Christ. There's a growing in this commitment. But for all of us, as in marriage, there is a danger. And the first thing that Paul hits here is the temptation to undermine the gospel, what we're calling gospel erosion. Verse 2 introduces us to this danger. If you accept circumcision, Paul says, Christ will be of no advantage to you. In other words, if you take the gospel message, repentance and faith in Christ and Christ alone, and you add anything to that, the gospel itself is lost. So the first step to undermining the gospel is to accept Jesus plus anything, and I mean anything at all. The specific addition Paul is targeting here is circumcision. And that's shorthand for saying you must become a cultural Jew in addition to placing faith in Christ. So the question in this early church is, do you need to become a Jew by culture in addition to becoming a Christian? Now, that's not the question that faces most of us today, but you could add anything here. Do you need to become American to become a Christian? A Republican? A Baptist? But what Paul says here is you can't lean on Christ for salvation if you think that anything else is necessary. It's Christ and Christ alone. In fact, if you add any requirement, you'll find that you will suffocate under the law. Verse 3, every man who accepts circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law. So it's not just a matter of becoming a Jew, it's a matter of being able to keep the entire law perfectly. Romans 3 verse 20, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has been guilty of all of it. Now, we often think of the word of God like this, or God's commandments like this. It's a little bit like going to your local library. You walk in, and there are a lot of books on the shelf. Uh, these books are honor your father and mother. You know, don't steal. Uh, don't tell lies. Like, these are the books on the shelf, and, you know, I'll take this book, and I'll take this book, and I'll check out some of these books. And as long as these books are a part of my sort of lived-out library, I'm good. But God's word tells us that's not how the law works. No, these aren't books on a shelf to be selectively obeyed. Rather, it's one chain. And if you break one link in this chain, the entire chain breaks. If you are committed to finding God through your obedience, it's like you're clinging to a chain hanging over the abyss of God's eternal judgment. 
And if you fail to keep one of the links in this chain, you will plunge to eternal damnation. It's not something that can be selectively obeyed. The way that James puts it is, if you break one of these laws, you are guilty of all. The chain breaks. Why is this? It's because though there are many laws, there is one law giver. James goes on and says, for the one who said, you shall not murder, also said, you shall not commit adultery. So if you don't murder, are you guilty of committing adultery? No, but you're guilty of breaking the lawgiver's law. To cling to the law for the salvation. To break one commandment. To fail to love God for one moment. Is to break a link in this chain. This unbreakable chain and plunge into the abyss. And if you do this, you fall away from grace. Verse 4, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. You see, to rely on anything but Jesus and Jesus alone is to be cut off from Christ. It is to fall away from grace. Now here we come to one of the most uncomfortable teachings of God's word in the gospel. And it's the word apostasy. Apostasy is someone who has made a profession of faith in Christ... But later, by virtue of their belief or the way they live, they, they're living, they turn from that profession. Jesus, in Mark 4, tells us the parable of the soils, sometimes called the parable of the sower. Remember, he goes out and he spreads the seed. And some seed falls by the path. It's hard there, and birds see the seed and they come eat it. The seed of the gospel is snatched away. Other seed falls on rocky ground where there's a little bit of soil and so it digs down roots, but then the sun comes up, scorches it, and it dies. Still others fall among the thorns. And the power of the thorns, these worldly cares, is such that it chokes the life out of this seed and the seed dies. But some seed, Jesus says, falls on good ground. And how do you know what the good seed on the good ground is? It's the one that produces fruit. He says it yields 30-fold, 60-fold, and some 100-fold fruit. The Bible teaches that we can apostatize in one of three ways. One is by rejecting the truth of God's word. In other words, we come to this and we set our own ideas, our own thoughts above it, and we reject it. Both 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 4 describe this. Uh, 2 Timothy 4 describes it this way, is that we keep to ourselves teachers having itching ears wanting to hear what we want to hear and so what we do is we refuse to hear the truth and we rather hear what we want to hear and we reject the truth of God's word but sometimes people are led away from Christ through persecution first Peter the book of Hebrews described this people who experience intense persecution for their faith and some walk away but Hebrews chapter 3 1 Corinthians 5 tell us also that some walk away because they love their sin. Sometimes our love for sin, like the love, like those thorns, it chokes our love for Christ and we turn away. Hebrews 13, 3 verse 13 says, you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now in Galatians, Paul is addressing the idea that there are some who turn away from Christ by rejecting the truth of the gospel. It's that first one. They reject the truth of God's word. 
So whether it's a way of looking at politics, economics, culture, good works, anything at all, to add anything to the gospel of salvation by faith in Christ alone, is to reject the gospel itself. Now, everything that we're about to talk about is a fruit of the gospel. It's, it's that 30-fold, that 60-fold, that 100-fold. But you cannot have the fruit of the gospel if you do not have the root of faith in Christ. Perhaps as you sit here this morning and you look at your life, you have to admit there's not much fruit of the Spirit. Now, that may be because life in this world is hard and growth in Christ is slow. But it may also be because some of us are missing the root of genuine saving faith in Christ. You see, in the beginning, God made everything good. But the first human beings, Adam and Eve, broke God's law. And Genesis 3 tells us that in breaking God's one commandment, all creation is now broken. But that same chapter promises that there is a Savior coming. One who would crush the head of the serpents. And that anyone who places their faith in this Savior, Jesus Christ, can be saved. If you're here apart from faith in the perfectly lived life, the sacrificial death, the risen nature of Jesus Christ, would you turn from your sin? Would you trust this message and this alone? There is salvation in no one else. So we've got Christ and Christ alone for salvation. But what are the continuing effects? What is the fruit of this gospel? How does the gospel work itself out? And here's where Paul builds this link for us between justification, Christ, and the work of the Spirit in our sanctification. You see, the gospel comes to us through faith, and then it works its way out in our lives through the power of the Spirit. Paul says we do this through the Spirit by faith. Now, Christians and Christian churches tend to interact with the work of the Spirit in one of two ways. There are Christians who get real nervous when you talk about the Spirit. And so, we know it's there, but we kind of diminish it because it makes us uncomfortable. Because the work of the Spirit is internal. It's subjective. And the subjective nature of this makes us a little bit uncomfortable. But on the other hand, there are those who emphasize the spirit perhaps differently than scripture does they emphasize different things than the weight of scripture puts on it and so that can lead to all kinds of craziness in our interest of steering away from this craziness we got to go the other way and some people even say the spirit is the forgotten third member the overlooked member of the trinity but what we see here in god's word is that we cannot minimize the work of the Spirit because the Spirit is necessary for our sanctification. We magnify the Spirit's ongoing ministry in our lives by tethering it securely to the Word of God. In other words, the work of the Spirit cannot be separated from the work of God in His Word. And the work of the Spirit is one of the main themes of Galatians 5. Now the work of the Spirit that Paul focuses on focuses on here isn't charismatic gifts but rather the sanctifying work of the spirit of god in producing the character of christ in us in other words the clearest evidence of the spirit's work is people that increasingly think act live and love like jesus so paul says in verse 5 through the spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. 
In other words, today, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you have been declared righteous through the blood of Jesus. But there is coming a day when you will hear that verdict, righteous. And so we live today in the reality of what we have received through faith in Christ. But we look forward with hope to the day when you hear, righteous, well done, come on in. We eagerly await that day. And how is it that we look forward to that day? Verse 5, through the Spirit, by faith. We eagerly wait for this. Brothers and sisters, there is coming a day when our feet stand before God and God says, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of our elder brother Jesus, come on in and we eagerly await that day. In other words, the work of the Spirit in the here and now prepares us for that sweet by and by. There's a land that is fairer than day. By faith, we can see it from afar. The Father waits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there. Brothers and sisters, we look forward to that day by faith. And the ministry of the Spirit today is to assure us of this. Romans 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. The doctrine of assurance is one of the most precious gifts of God, but can be the most elusive thing for a child of God. And it's one of the most terrifying things because our eternal destiny rests on it. And so what do you do if you're walking through life, confessing sin, seeking to faithfully walk with Christ, and yet that gift of sweet assurance eludes you? Pray for the Spirit to work to assure you that you are a child of God, that the Spirit will bear witness with our spirit. And what does this look like? What is the evidence that the Spirit is working? It is faith working through love. Verse 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. 1 John chapter 4 makes the same link that Paul makes here. The work of the Spirit is demonstrated as we love one another. 1 John 4, 13. By this we know that we abide in Christ and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. 1 John 4, 21, whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's faith working through love. Yet if you're like me, you know there are so many challenges to living life this way. Let's pick up in verse 7. Galatians 5, 7, Paul writes, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I wish Paul could speak his mind, but he tends to beat around the bush so much. But what he gets at here is our tendency to get distracted from the gospel. How do we get off track? How do we get diverted from what's essential? And verses 7 through 12 tell us the story behind the story. 
So the headline is, Church Off Track. The subtext buried in the article is, there are people leading them off track. There are teachers distracting them. They didn't get there on their own. False teachers have come into this church. They've emphasized culture. They've emphasized different convictions. They've emphasized their ideas over the word itself. So the first step toward gospel distraction is listening to teachers who don't emphasize God's word. Listen to teachers who don't emphasize God's word. You see, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. We don't get off track in a vacuum. Verse 7, who hindered you? Verse 10, one who is troubling you, whoever he is. Verse 12, those who unsettle you. In other words, there are people doing this. These teachers have set aside the authority of God's word for the authority of their opinions. This is one reason that we believe in preaching the way that we do, expository Christ-centered preaching, where we seek to take the word and expose what is actually in the word rather than coming with our ideas to the word and imposing them on the word. There's a form of preaching or public speaking that tips its hat to the word. Maybe you've had this where the preacher says, open your Bibles, reads a verse, and then you never look at your Bible again. That person's emphasizing human ideas over the word of God. And sometimes those ideas are even biblically okay. But over time, what are those teachers teaching us? They are teaching us to rely on human ideas rather than the word of God itself. And what happens when human ideas begin to stray from the teaching of God's word, we begin to stray too. It is essential that we tether our thinking and living to this living word. Congregations trained to listen to human opinions, when the truth of God's word is no longer culturally acceptable, will wander from the truth. Because their confidence is in a human teacher, not the word itself. You see, the core issue with these teachers is they are using their influence to hinder the church from actually obeying the truth. They care more about their obedience to the teacher than their submission to the word of God. Now, these are good teachers because the church has gotten distracted. They have gotten distracted from the truth of God's word. Verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Uh, The picture is like this. These people are running a race. They're all moving. They're going. They're running toward Jesus. And then they hear or see something over here. And they get distracted. Now there are still Christians running the race. But there are people off over here chasing rabbits. And it only takes a small distraction. Verse verse 9 A little leaven, just a little, leavens the whole lump. And man, if there's any culture that gets distraction, it's ours. Do you ever think, okay, I need to do such and such? You pick up your phone to do it, and there are 14 notifications when you pick up your phone. And you're chasing those notifications, you put your phone down, and you forget why you picked it up in the first place. Distraction. We live in a world full of micro-distractions. But we also live in a world full of macro-distractions. When on the right, conspiracy conspiracy theories like Q or QAnon have infiltrated common life levels of government. Sometimes tearing families apart. On the left, critical race theory infiltrates government, schools, and churches. 
and Christians spend their lives pointing at one another and saying, your threat is worse than mine. And what Paul says is they're all threats. They're all distractions. Well, what do we do? Well, the answer to fighting distraction isn't to become an expert in the distractions. It's not to study the threats all the time, although there's some merit to knowing what the threats are. It is devoting ourselves to the word of God. Verse 7, keep obeying the truth of God's word. Which means to obey the truth, you must what? You must know it. You must read it. You must hear it. You must study it. You must meditate on it. You must spend your life swimming in the truth of God's word. Our culture is preaching at us 167 hours a week. We walk in one hour on Sunday morning and think we'll be vaccinated against all these threats. Brothers and sisters, we must soak our soul in the life-giving truth of God's word. The biggest threat to the church is not all those things out there. It's that God's people are not devoting themselves to this book. This truth is the life-giving message. It is the word of life. Brothers and sisters, it is not a matter of do you like it or not? Can you, can you take it or leave it? It is life or death. We read, sing, preach, pray, hear, sing the word. Because it is the word of life. It empowers us for mission. It equips us. It converts us. And Paul bookends this section with a call to freedom. Verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And now let's pick up and read verse 13. Here Paul writes, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only use not your freedom as an opportunity for the, for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, and he quotes from Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So how is it that we live out our gospel freedom? You're called to freedom. And then Paul hits on a key temptation that every one of us face. Verse 13, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So as children grow up, they want what? They want freedom. They grow from young. As they grow older, they want more and more freedom. But often what kids mean when they say, I want freedom, is they want what? The freedom to do what I want to do. But there is a freedom that says, if I can be free from these restrictions, actually what that opens up for me is a world of mission and opportunity that's greater than anything I can do here. The desire for freedom is actually a desire to maximize the glory and love of God in the world. So it's not sowing wild oats. Some young people, when they leave home, flourish. They maximize their God-given potential for the sake of God's kingdom. You see, the point of rearing children is not merely to keep them safe. Oh, it is to keep them safe but it's also to prepare them to flourish in freedom as fully formed followers of Jesus. 
a joke around sometime, and I don't know how this, these roles work in your life, but say often it's one parent's job to help their children actually survive to adulthood, keep them from doing anything to kill themselves. And perhaps the other parent exists to help that child experience and, and test the boundaries to prepare them to flourish when they reach adulthood, if the other parent manages to help them survive. Well, how do we live out the gospel? Paul says we do it freely. Verse 13, you were called to freedom. If following Jesus, if living a holy life, if denying yourself for the sake of following Christ sounds like bondage, you don't know the heart of your Savior. Philippians 2 tells us one day every knee will be compelled to bow to Christ. But the gospel calls us to freely, willingly, gladly take his yoke on us. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Wedding ring. Bondage. Freedom. Now some of you are like, that's a trick question. If you look at this as a symbol of bondage, all that you can't do, all the people you can't pursue, all that you can't chase, the way it binds you, you don't know the joy of marriage. You see, what this does is it frees you to love somebody in a way that you're not free to love anyone else. It empowers you to serve and sacrifice for that person in a way that you don't serve and sacrifice for anybody else. You see, in a loving, committed relationship, there is unbelievable freedom. It's not bondage, it's liberty. It's a liberty to love and be loved in a way that you can only imagine. And brothers and sisters, to love Christ is to love the best bridegroom. And be loved perfectly, sacrificially in a way that you could never deserve. In a love that no matter how badly you fail, you cannot separate yourself from the love of God in Christ. It's to be accepted in the beloved. It's to experience freedom and acceptance that we all long for, but can only imagine here in this life. It is a life of freedom. And this life of freedom is a life of sacrificial service. Now, individual freedom is perhaps the great value in our culture. We see this in our insistence on the right to self-expression. On the one hand, we say, well, you can take my guns when you pry them out of my dead cold hands. On the other hand, we got people that say that any form of sexual self-expression is good. Well, I'm not really trying to equate the ethics of any of our positions. I am saying that we need to see as Christians what God calls us to in the gospel. Verse 13, through love, serve one another. You see, the tone of the Christian life and of Christian witness should be sacrificial service that evidences itself in love. Verses 13 and 14, through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what's the alternative to loving your neighbor like this? Verse 15. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now, when it comes to biting and devouring, it seems to me that there's an active way that we can bite and devour, and perhaps a passive way as well. This active biting, this active devouring is 
we might call it the way of the wolf. Some churches, some groups of Christians act more like packs of wolves than sheepdogs. You see, when a wolf spots something or someone weak, the pack turns on the weak one and eats them. A good sheepdog, a family of sheepdogs, they guard and protect the weak members of the flock. Now, we don't do this by literal eating, but some of us are really good at burning up phone lines, text messages, biting, devouring. Well, biting and devouring, who does that sound like? Perhaps it rings a bell in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You see, this kind of behavior is the behavior of the slanderer of slanderers. Sometimes Satan doesn't even have to do this work because we do it for him. But there's another more passive way that we can consume one another. This, unlike the way of the wolf, this is the way of the parasite. It's not as obvious, but it eats at us from the inside out. And though less obvious, it's just as dangerous over time. Now, like Christians, we're good at branding everything, so we brand this consumerism. Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. It's possible that the entire way we look at church is actually consuming. When we can't consume what we want, we go consume someplace else. This is not unique just to our church. Many churches are served by a few servant-hearted people who get burned out as people consume their service. So it's typical to come to church asking, what do I need or what do I want? But what does scripture point us to? Serving others in love. You see, one is a giving, one is a taking, a consuming. You see, there is an alternative. It's a new culture, a culture that grows with its roots deep in the character of Christ. It's the culture of the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Through love, serve one another. And this, brothers and sisters, is the culture of the gospel. It's the culture of grace. As Christ, Philippians 2 tells us, set aside all of his divine rights and humbled himself to become a servant to the point of dying a sacrificial death on a cross. If Christ set aside his infinite eternal divine rights, what is it for us to set our much pettier human rights? It's not a culture where everyone agrees on everything where everyone sees everyone the same way. But it's a culture that says no to biting and devouring and says we're here to love, serve, and sacrifice. So when we don't see life the same way, we at least agree that we're here to do what? Serve one another in love. And how do we know if we're doing that? Well, Paul answers this for us next week, which we'll look at, but verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That, brothers and sisters, is our vision. That is our culture. 
Christ calls us to this kind of freedom. The freedom to loving service. Let's do this. Let's be this kind of church. This is the way of the gospel. It's the fruit of the gospel. It's the way of grace. So let's take a minute now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. Asking God to make us spirit-empowered, sacrificial servants of others. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now. God, would you help us to run well? Not get distracted from obeying the truth, but run this race looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Lord, we admit we're just stumbling, broken sinners. But God, we also gladly confess that we are your children. We are saints declared righteous through the blood of Christ. God, would you help us live out our identity as sons and daughters of God, gladly worshiping the King and happy to serve one another. God, I pray that this kind of culture, this gospel fruit, would permeate our relationships, our congregation. God, flow through us into our community that we would not hide the light of Christ here. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this passage pointed us toward eagerly awaiting the hope of righteousness. The day when we stand before God's throne and God says, welcome home. Our final psalm points us to that vision in Revelation 5. When every tongue from every nation, people stand around the throne and say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Would you stand, please? We'll sing together.